everyone, welcome to the Paw Awareness Podcast, and thanks for joining me. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and also check us out at pawawareness.org and on Instagram at pawawareness underscore official. On Instagram, we are doing submissions for Pet of the Week, where you can submit your foster pet and we'll pick one winner every month and we'll give $200 to their choice of charity or foster. Thanks for watching and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of the Paw Awareness Podcast. Today I have Gina Carbonari with the Ulster County SPCA and I'm gonna go ahead and let her introduce herself about her organization that she works with and uh, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure, uh, I'm Gina Carbonaro, I'm the Executive Director for the Ulster County SPCA located in Kingston, New York. And uh, our mission is to help uh, abuse, neglected and homeless animals. And we do that through a variety of different programs that we have. Um, we obviously do adoptions, we take in surrenders, uh, we have community assistance programs as well to try to keep pets in their homes. Uh, so we have a food pantry. Uh, we have some low-cost veterinary services. Uh, we do have our own clinic. And we also are the only organization in the county that does humane law enforcement. So that means that we directly are involved in abuse and neglect cases from the very initial um, allegation, uh, someone calling in with a complaint, all the way through to prosecution. Um, so we are really unique uh, as an agency in this area in that we are the only ones that do that. And I know that we were touching on this before the call. First, I want to say is that you guys do so many different facets of that. You cover so many different facets of the animal rescue community. But I know that you mentioned that this is, you know, there there are you you see there are SPCAs everywhere, but they're not necessarily all linked. Right. Is that correct? Yes. So it's really important um, that your local SPCA, that you kind of get to know them individually, because first off, each SPCA is its own organization. Uh, None of us are connected to the ASPCA. So the ASPCA is its own private nonprofit organization that does not get connected to any of the others. Um, I often hear people say, well, what about your headquarters? Well, we are our headquarters because we, we are it. Uh, so, you know, there are other SPCAs in the other counties around us as well. They also are not connected to us and they're not connected to the ASPCA. Um, so especially when it comes to, to funding, people really need to know that because they think somehow that that funding that they give to the A somehow makes its way down to their local shelter and it does not. Um, so people really do need to understand the difference between those. The other part in that too, is that a lot of times, for example, we carry our county name as the Ulster County SPCA, but we have no affiliation with the county government. So we do not get funding from them either. People also think, um, that their taxpayer dollars are funding us, uh, or that we are, we are a obligated to provide some type of service because we are a county organization and we are not. So most of, of your SPCAs may carry um, a county name or, or some other municipality name, but may not actually be a part of that municipality when it comes to their funding or their structure or, um, or anything like that. So like I said, it's important to get to know your own local SPCA so that you know what those differences are. And I think that's a really a great distinction that you made there. And you guys do so many different things. Does... Every SPCA, for example, take care of the 
animal enforcement type what type side of things, or is that really just kind of as an organization by organization type deal? It still would be an organization by organization, but generally speaking in New York State, uh, your SPCAs are the ones who are doing humane law enforcement. And that's where um, there is a bit of a distinction between humane societies in New York State who are animal welfare organizations, but they they don't um, uh, have the authorization to be uh, involved with humane law enforcement. So your humane law enforcement officers are peace officers, so they carry full uh, police authorities, when they're going out and doing investigations, they can make arrests, they 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 press charges, they do everything uh, that a police officer would do. Um, when you have a humane society or or some other type of rescue, those folks um, are doing uh, the, the rescuing part of it. They're doing the, um, the husbandry, they're doing the care, they're doing so many other programs uh, other than actual having law enforcement uh, officers working for them. So that's kind of where the difference is in New York State, anyway, between SPCAs and humane societies and rescues. Interesting. Yeah. And I, and I also wanted to ask you, too, I love asking this question because it's so different based on wherever people are. Right? I've, I've interviewed people from across America. What is one unique what, or what are you seeing that might be unique to New York or what's the state of rescue like there? Um, are there you know, certain issues that you're seeing arise. I don't know how far away you're from New York City. I would imagine that's probably its own bubble. I don't even know what that's like. I've never talked with anyone there. But what 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 are you seeing on the ground floor? Uh, so we are located uh, two hours outside of Manhattan. So um, okay. we actually have have <laughs> our area is very connected to New York City. Um, we do have a lot of folks who have weekend homes up here. We have a lot of folks, especially during the COVID era and uh, and and since have been moving up here um, because it is still pretty close to being in the city. Um, they can do you know work in the city and live up here. Um, I can remember even even as a child, you know, one of my friends, her her dad, they moved up here out of out of Staten Island, and her father still every day went to work in in New York City um, because they just wanted to live the lifestyle here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, but be able to have, you know, the, the the career in New York City. So that's kind of the area that we're in. Um, and I would say that that here in New York State isn't really too much different than a lot of other places. And it becomes a, a different kind of mix of the different types of shelters and rescues that we have here, um, which each one has its own mission and what it is that they're doing as a part of animal welfare and rescue. Um, but we do still have overpopulation issues here. So a lot of a lot of folks do think, well, you're in New York, you're in a northern state, you know, all of those problems of overcrowding and shelters is just a southern issue, and it really isn't. Uh, it all depends on where you go because it all depends on what your resources are, and that's the same issue realistically that they have in the South, um, where you hear about it more prevalently, is that it's an issue of resources. Um, you have to have funding to be able to do spay and neuter clinics. Uh, you have to have funding to be able to offer programs. You have to have funding to be able to do all of those things. You also have to have education uh, to be able to let people know um, the benefits of spay and neuter. Uh, so even here, uh, we help uh, New York City Animal Care and Control um, a lot of times where they need to move animals. So a lot of places do rescue predominantly from the south to the north. Um, but in in our area too, we also try to keep helping our local community first. 
Um, but we also then expand outwards. And, and we do kind of consider New York City to be somewhat of our local community because so many of our community members have a connection to the city. Um, so we do work with them as well, New York City ACC, to bring a lot of animals up here to us to help alleviate the pressures that they have uh, because they have a huge, huge intake um, every single day uh, in all of the boroughs. Yeah, I mean, especially only being a couple hours outside, like you said, I mean, that's very connected to New York City. And does that mean that a lot of your partnerships are based in New York City then? Uh, actually, no. So our New York City ACC is our, our main New York City partner. But again, they have um, they have shelters uh, throughout all five boroughs. So we may connect strictly with, you know, the umbrella of New York City ACC. But when we're pulling animals, one transport may bring us, you know, a dog from Manhattan and two cats from Brooklyn. And, you know, we bring up guinea pigs and rabbits from them all the time uh, from from the Bronx. So it all depends on, um, you know, they'll do a transport that comes from the five boroughs and brings it to us. But it could be coming from from any of those locations. And what would you say is. And we can get into this in terms of uh, last year might have been an exception, but like right now, what would you say is the average uh, length of time you're holding a pet, the average adoption rate, would you say? So it always depends on on the species. Um, for example, we have roosters right now from uh, a cockfighting case who have been with us for a year. Roosters are very hard to place. Uh, they don't go very easily. Um, I'm sure everybody can understand why roosters aren't necessarily the best, um, the, the, the pet that is flying out of the door the fastest. Um, compared to puppies will literally be on our Facebook page for a day and then they're, they're gone. Um, same thing with kittens. Kittens sometimes can take a little bit longer because we tend to have a lot more kittens. Um, so I think when you look at length of stay, it, it, there's so many factors that go into that. Um, and certainly it's different for every area that you're in. Um, we have several other organizations that are nearby us that also do a lot of work with cats and kittens. Um, so there really are a lot of places you can go to to find kittens, not as many to find puppies. And I will say, honestly, if we even have one litter of puppies that comes to us organically from our local community, that's amazing for us because spay-neuter is working so well here, we just don't ever see uh, a lot of puppies being born around here. So when we do have puppies, generally it's because we've transported them from another shelter. Um, and, and most of the time they are at risk of euthanasia uh, because they're so overcrowded in those other shelters. And that's where our, our, our transport partners in the South um, really do rely on, on us and some other organizations here um, to be able to keep those keep that that system flowing um, until we can get a more permanent answer with uh, with more effective spay neuter. Yeah, and I think that's great that you guys are importing from some of those more crowded areas because space is so critical. Um, and I think that's amazing. And uh, what would you say? I know that we were kind of touching on this before the call. But in terms of I, I wanted to talk about it with you with the state of uh, adoptions and, you know, this, this uh, people, you know, uh, sending their pets back in after adopting them during COVID. And I've had people come to me and ask me about that. And I'm not really sure where that's kind of starting, but if we could touch on that and kind of what you're seeing at, from your perspective, that would be great. 
Yeah. And, and I, as we were saying, you know, I've, I've been asked that this week um, several times of what's going on with all these people turning in their pets now um, after COVID and uh, not wanting them uh, anymore. And I would say that that's, that's not really what's happening. Um, and again, so it's, it's being painted into this picture of all these people adopted because they were stuck at home. And now that they're not stuck at home anymore, they're turning all those animals back in. We here have not seen that. Um, and most of the folks that I've talked to in other areas of the country um, have not seen that either. I actually was just reading a story from um, uh, Humane Society of the United States about that as well of trying to address the fact that that doesn't seem to be what's actually happening. Uh, what everybody is seeing though, um, and we are also a best friends, uh, a best friends partner as well. So um, again, some of these national level organizations that we work with, um, you know, trying to, to find out what, what is happening in other locations, because, you know, we're, we're here in our spots thinking, wow, all of a sudden we have no adoptions happening yet. We're, we're getting a, a much greater increase in our intake. So trying to figure out, is this just a local level thing or is this something that's uh, bigger and broader? And so it's really nice when we can be so connected to other organizations around the country um, because we can get a much better feel for what is the tempo, what is the pulse, what is going on. Uh, overall with animal welfare. And the consensus seems to be that everyone is feeling the same thing that we are, that there seems to be decrease in adoption and an increase in intake, but not that it's at the level um, that is much higher than pre-pandemic for this type of time of year um, where people do start to plan their summer vacations, their kids are getting out of school. So there's a lot of things that start happening at the beginning of summer that tend to have your, your uh, adoptions decrease and your intake increase. Um, and I think it just feels a little bit more, um, more dire right now because we're coming from a period where everybody was talking about how so many adoptions are happening and animals were moving so much more quickly than they are now. So now it feels very odd for us to be kind of back in somewhat sense of normal uh, pattern with increased um, intake and decreased adoption, where it's not about people just saying, well, I'm done with this animal because I don't need him now that I can, <laughs> I can leave my house again. It's just the general uh, cycle of sheltering that, that we're seeing. And we just aren't really used to it now after a year plus of really having so many adoptions. So, I mean, it's kind of like this cycle. Um, is there anything that we can do, you think, to kind of, uh, I don't know, help increase adoptions? I mean, outside of what is already being done in the community? I think it's a, it's always for every shelter a balancing act. And um, between your, your adoptions and your intake. Um, and you want to try to keep them matched as best as possible because otherwise you you get into a spot where you can't take any more in, um, or you have to do other things in order to take more in. We are a limited intake facility, which means that once we are full, we have to start working with folks on how can you keep those animals in the home. We cannot accept any more because we do not euthanize for space. So when, when an organization is defining themselves as using the term no kill, there is a very broad definition for no kill. 
Uh, some simply go by by 90% uh, live release rate. Um, in other words, only 10% of the animals coming in may be euthanized. Um, and then others also have definitions of, are you an open admission shelter or are you limited intake? An open admission shelter has no choice but to take all of those animals in. And unfortunately, most of our municipalities, that's what that's the situation that they're in. Someone comes to the door, it does not matter the reason, there's, they're giving you an animal, then you have to take that animal. Um, for us, our open admission side is our dog control and our humane law enforcement. So when we have those legal type cases or we have those kinds of strays, we have to take those animals in. However, if somebody calls us and says, well, I'm moving next week and I can't take my pet with me, we can work with them a little bit more of, okay, well, we have another week. So I, we don't need to bring the animal in right now. Let's work on rehoming. Let's work on um, advertising this animal is available, that you're, you're looking for a, a means to get this animal into a new home. And maybe that's one of the ways that we can keep the animal from even coming into the shelter. So there's all these different things that we do do in order to try to prevent the animals from coming in so we continue to have enough space for those really urgent ones who have to come in, um, as well as keep those adoptions moving so that, that we keep the space opening up. Um, so there's this, this real challenge with how do we balance all of that uh, all the time. And, and of course, we can always just say, well, we just need more people to adopt. But we always want to make sure, too, that people are ready to adopt. Uh, this way, they aren't bringing animals back to us um, because we do matchmaking. We want to make sure that this is the right animal for the right home. Um, and if we, we start trying to just kind of push too quickly through all of that, then you only end up with having returns anyway. And returns are okay because we want the animal to come back if it's not a fit, a good fit, uh, rather than have something else happen with the animal. Yeah, and I think that's a great distinction to make because I think some people are just, you know, when they hear no kill, they don't understand that there's this umbrella term where it may not necessarily mean that. So, and they just drop it off and they don't understand any of the risk. now. On the other hand, though, I've talked with some people who they are scared to take animals in because of that. And so I want to ask you, is there a way for an individual to basically to find out on their local shelter what type of no kill that is? Right. I mean, will a shelter just tell you if you just ask, like, hey, what does this mean if I bring in, you know, this dog, for example, Will that be something that they can disclose that they're likely to disclose or what do you think there? Oh, absolutely. They, if, if a shelter would not disclose that I would be yeah. concerned, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, they should, they should absolutely um, be more than willing to explain how it is um, that they describe themselves as no kill. Uh, for us, we have a no kill philosophy that is published that clearly lets everybody know how we define ourselves as no kill. Um, especially because, again, we, we have that um, unique position of being, we, we do label ourselves as the limited intake, but we do have that side that requires us to be open admission with dog control and humane law enforcement. Um, so we're a little bit of, a, of an amalgamation between the two. Um, but when you read our no-kill philosophy, uh, which is available for, for the public to read, it's on our, our website and everything, um, it does very clearly identify also when we get to the point of we do have to euthanize an animal of, um, you know, what are some of the parameters in which we would make that choice? 
Uh, and it's very clear. It's very objective. Um, so, so people can really understand it isn't about you like, or you don't like an animal or, or they, they did one thing wrong or anything like that, but there's, there's a specific process. Um, if it's not a, a clear immediate medical issue, uh, especially when we start talking about behavioral euthanasia, um, there's a very clear process that we go through in order to make that determination. And as part of our no-kill philosophy, we define what unhealthy and untreatable is. And to relate this back to the uh, SPCA, is that the no-kill philosophy? Is that different per or like per entity, or is that kind of across the entire board? No, each each organization, I would say, should have their own no-kill philosophy um, because. As I said before, you, you know, you could, you, maybe you're just saying that, well, we're at 90%, so therefore we're going to say that we are, are no kill, and that's perfectly fine. Um, some places are sanctuaries where there is absolutely no reason that they're going to euthanize an animal. So, again, that's their definition of no kill. No kill, if you, if you Google it and research it, there's there's a lot of nuance to the definition, which again can allow you to be anywhere from sanctuary status to simply hitting the ninety percent mark. Um, and it's important, I think, that an organization, if you're going to use that term, clearly defines where on that spectrum you're falling. Because unfortunately, the the general public, not being in this industry and understanding all these definitions. Um, automatically assumes that no kill means that you will never euthanize. And, and that makes sense because the term itself makes it sound like you would never euthanize, which is why a lot of folks in the industry um, are really trying to find a better term than no kill because it, it really does leave it open to interpretation. And then you have folks who are supporting an organization, they euthanize an animal and, and those folks then become very upset because in their mind, they have a definition of what you should be doing and what your mission is. And now you aren't really living up to it. So, so that's why for us, we found it to be very important to have that philosophy in writing so that it's, it's there for everybody to see and understand. Uh, and we make the definitions very clear to how we apply them in our organization. I think that's great. And I think communication and expectations are key for really any organization. So I think that's awesome that you guys are doing that and that you're just so open about it. And I wanted to ask you too, I know that you guys have a program called Artists for Animals. Are those uh, pictures behind you, are those related to that or no? Yes. So, um, yeah, so the, the cow up there, um, yeah, that, yeah. Was, <laughs> that was one of our um, our artists who was uh, uh participated in the program. So, and I'll explain the program a little bit. Um, Artists for Animals is a program that we started, I want to say maybe about um, four years ago or so. And, uh, you know, the Hudson Valley is really known as being uh, an art community. Um, so, you know, you, you can go back into the 1800s and, and artists used to come from the city all the time because it's just such a beautiful area. Uh, and it's very inspiring. Um, the Hudson River School was started here, which is a, is a type of, of painting. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of history here with art and artists. So we started doing this uh, monthly program 
where every month we have a different artist that comes in and they display their artwork and a portion of uh, the proceeds from the sale of their artwork in the shelter um, comes to the shelter. And we always work with, with the artist as to what percentage they want to give us because we understand artists are trying to make money too. <laughs> you know, they have yeah. to eat. So, um, so we work with them and it's a great way for us to be able to highlight a lot of our local artists. Um, and at the same time, it's not always animal related art as well. Sometimes it is just, uh, all different kinds. So it doesn't always have to be somebody who just does animals in their artwork. Um, but it's been a great way to promote some of them, but yeah, the, that one is, and, um, the one underneath actually is, uh, from, we do sip and paints. Uh, so probably two or three times a year. So that one actually was done by me and it's my four dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. Wow. That's so cool. And, and what, you know, is that something that only locals can participate in, in terms of purchasing the painting or, Oh no, no. Um, we, we actually post, uh, the artist's work on our Facebook page. Um, so if somebody saw something they were interested, absolutely. They could just call us and, and order it and we could ship it to them. That's amazing. Yeah, because I love artwork and I think that's awesome. So definitely check that out. And then I guess I kind of wanted to end and just say, where can people find and support you guys? I know that, you know, and see some artwork. Where animals, where, where can we see all that at? Yeah, so everything is on our website. It's www.ucspca.org. And uh, it, our animals are posted on there now because since COVID, uh, everything is still by appointment. Um, I know here in, in New York, we are some of the last ones to um, to kind of come out of any type of restrictions. And again, it's really because New York City was hit very hard. And uh, certainly we're right outside of the city. And, and as we talked about being so connected, um, we really can understand uh what New York City went through, um, you know, when this all first started. And uh, I would even say that, you know, we were actually the first organization when we were talking about transports, we were the first organization to accept uh, pets out of New York City um, where their owners had passed from COVID. Um, so it was it was a very interesting time to be in animal welfare because at that point we still didn't really understand how everything was being transmitted. Could you get it from your pets? Um, not necessarily because your pet itself was going to be infected but you know everything touching anything was of such concern and and there was a thought that if you're touching your pet and you're sick you could transmit that to somebody else who then touches your pet and then sneezes or touches their face so um, there was a lot of precautions that we went through when we accepted those animals um, not knowing you know how how anything was happening but uh, again they were so overwhelmed in New York City um, both on the human side and the animal side from uh, from what was happening that, uh, yeah, we, we certainly accepted when they asked for help. So it was a very interesting time. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. What, and, uh, yeah, like I'll have your website, uh, posted below. Are you guys on any social media, um, Instagram or Facebook? Yeah, we are on Instagram. We do Facebook. Our artists for animals are always up on, on the website and on our social media. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we anything that we're doing, events, all that stuff, we keep it all on our our website and on our social media page. Uh, predominantly, a lot of Facebook. Perfect, and I'll have a link to all of those in the description below. Uh, Gina, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking to you, and I uh, feel like I learned a lot. Uh, hopefully, the audience did too. Thank you so much. Great, thank you so much.